this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. here i got my little back pillow to preserve the curve in my spine i'm ready i'm ready to do this i i've got i've got a stack of index cards here i'm trying to do do this on index cards because uh i don't know i get tired of staring at the screen and it's too easy to write too many notes when you do it on the computer so i'm, I'm going analog right now i'm going analog with this one so what I want to talk about today, I want to talk about two things, two things that seem like they're not related. I didn't think were related, but the more I stewed on them, especially over the holiday, the more I realized that, uh, well, they're intertwined. I couldn't even separate the two things if I wanted to. They're so connected. And the, the two things are note-taking and mental health. <laughs> what's What's really humorous to me right now is Maybe to some degree, this beginning sounds organized to you, but you have no idea what's going on right now. This computer has been stopping my recordings in the middle of me speaking. I don't know what's going on. You know, maybe it has something to do with this update. Anyways, we're going to keep going. So if you notice maybe a few spots for the timing, what I say is weird. It might be because the recorder kicked off and uh, I came back in and tried to pick up where I left off. We'll, we'll see. Let's talk a little bit about seasonal affective disorder, though. That's where I want to start, because I'm talking about this a lot. To be honest, when it comes to pretty much anything, like, other than what I'm interested in, I, I'm not really much of a talker about me. You know, like, I, I will talk about stories. I will talk about uh, shared experiences. I will talk about things that I... That I've learned and things that I know and things that I think I know and dumbass opinions that I argue with people over for no reason. But when it comes to how I'm feeling, if I'm having difficulties or things like that, 
I don't know. Maybe it's my, uh, you know, I'm part, a small part of my bloodline is English. Maybe from the English, I, I uh, inherited that stiff upper lip thing. Or maybe it's just because I grew up uh, an only child. But I just, I don't know. It's, it's not something I've ever done, really. Every once in a while, I'll share something. But for the most part, I'm really self-contained, which in some ways, very good. But as you can imagine, in other ways, it's awful. Um, it's, it's a bad habit to have, or not even a bad habit thing that minimizes it. It's a bad way of being for a lot of things. And one of the hardest things for me is winter every year. And it's only as I've gotten older, and I think that's just because of repetition, that I realized winter was a problem. You know, the more winters you go through, the more you start to see patterns. And maybe that threshold, that number that makes something obvious is different for everybody. Because it seems to me like it's taken me almost uh, 40 to figure that out. Although, you know, let's be honest, I don't remember if I went through stuff like this when I was younger because the generation that I am, we didn't have these words. We weren't aware of these things when I was growing up. So when you're not aware of them and they're not given vocabulary, you don't look for them. You just think that, you know, it is what it is. Uh, For example, you know, like anxiety, we talk a lot about anxiety in modern society, but even if you went back uh, 60, 70 years ago and tried to ask people, do you ever feel anxious? They probably would have looked at you like there was something wrong with you. Like, no, I don't feel anxious. Because what they defined as anxious was like this, was something closer to like the strict dictionary definition. They didn't see anxiety as like this um, mental state of being that a lot of people experience. That doesn't mean that they didn't experience back then. They just didn't know that's what it was. You know, there's certain things uh, like when women would have strong emotional states because of... uh, of their cycle, back then they would refer to it sometimes as hysteria. Now, a lot of the reason for that, of course, was uh, misogyny. You know, like they just, just basically just saying that they were dumb. You know, like they're dumb and they're crazy. But now we know a little bit more about science. (laughs) And we know that sometimes the hormones in a woman's body can make her Uh, experience things that aren't uh, in the parameters of normal for her. That's a difficult thing. But the terminology, oh, it's hysteria. They're crazy. They didn't understand this other state yet. Because we haven't, part of it, because we hadn't given it vocabulary. And one of those things is the seasonal affective disorder. I'm not a big fan of the name because it's kind of pathetic, really. (laughs) It's a pathetic name. It's it's seasonal affective disorder. Why is it seasonal affective disorder? Because they really wanted it to spell S-A-D. They really wanted the acronym to say SAD. So they stretched the words seasonal affective. What the fuck does that mean, really? It could have been, I mean, even disorder. And that was like the catchphrase, I guess, at the time. Because in reality, it's closer to seasonal affective depression. But whatever, that's the term they chose. 
For me, I experience it every year. And every year, winter is brutal for me. It's a very difficult time for me. I've heard a lot of explanations as to why this is. People say that it's because of a deficiency in vitamin D or deficiency of vitamin K because you're not getting enough sunlight. Well, I can tell you that that's not exactly accurate. I wouldn't have been able to tell you before, probably this year, but this fall, we're, we're heading into winter now, this fall so far in California hasn't really been cloudy. It hasn't really rained. It's been, even on the cold days, it's been mostly sunny. So I've been getting plenty of sun and hasn't made a difference. Now, four things I noticed this year. I noticed that there are four things that happen to me every winter. Some of them, like like seasonal affective disorder, have something to do with the way my body functions or whatever it is. And some of them are just weird coincidences, I guess, that it happens. But I would say that the, the four things that happen to me every year have happened at least four years in a row. And those are something invariably goes wrong with my teeth. I, last year, like, I think it was, was it just before Christmas, like two days before Christmas? Or even on, no, I think it was actually even on Christmas Eve, I had to have a root canal done. Because a, a tooth from years ago that had been root canal suddenly went bad. And the year before that, I don't remember what it was. It was I think it was, uh, I, mean, I had a cavity or something like that. And this year, I had another problem. <laughs> and uh, number two thing that always seems to go wrong, that seems to coincide, of course, with needing dental work, is uh, money. You know, I invariably have something come up that's unexpected other than the dental work, because the dental work would be a second thing on top of that, that screws up my finances for November and December and January, for that matter. Something, you know, like back when I had a car, it would be something went wrong with my car. And then a dental thing would happen. Uh, number three, my body. And this is more, um, you know, the other those two things, I would say teeth and money, it's just weird probability that those happened. But the body thing, I understand why it happens. Because of years of anxiety and now what I believe to be um, uh, that I'm in a state of recovery with severe anxiety, it puts my body into an equilibrium, a very delicate equilibrium. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm riding a fence most of the year. As long as I'm, I'm rolling and things are good, I feel good, things are okay. But one little tumble here or there, and it, it sets things out of balance. And it's tied with my number four, which my number four is mental. So my body and my, my mental situation are tied together. And I'm saying, you know, like I end up with a broken leg or anything like that. I've actually made it through 40 years, of, 43 years of my life without ever breaking a bone in my body, which is unbelievable considering some of the stuff I did 
when I was a kid. I jumped off a barn a couple times. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the stuff that I'm talking about with my body is uh, I consider anxiety partially physical, especially when it has to do with racing heartbeat and skipping heartbeat. That's tied inextricably with a mental situation. But then there's also the, you know, like the blood sugar and the, the cholesterol and these kind of body things. Blood pressure, very much tied to mental. So invariably, when winter comes and winter sets my body just a little out of balance because of whatever it is, you know, whether it's they're right that it's vitamin K or vitamin D deficiency or whatever, or maybe that my body just doesn't like lower temperatures for sustained periods of time. It knocks my equilibrium off kilter. And then my mental situation goes with it. And I usually start, I, I've experienced a lot of depression during winter and fall for that matter. And if we have a very rainy spring, then as well. <laughs> Basically, if it's not sunny, I have problems with depression. And, you know, some of it's tied in with these other things. You know, if you're having problems with money, you're probably having problems with your teeth, and your body feels weird. Yeah, you're going to feel anxiety. You're going to feel depression. That's That's understandable. But what I'm talking about is more... It's a different kind of depression. For anybody that's that's suffered from seasonal depression, I'm going to leave the A out because I think it's extreme. It's not needed. If you've experienced this, you know that this depression, it's like a, it's a general malaise is a good way to say it. You're not depressed about a specific thing. You're not down on, on life. You're just, you feel like Eeyore. You're like, okay, guess I'll get up and do something today. Uh, just sitting here watching TV again. That's the general state. So it's very easy to go lower when you're already like your you're zero. You know, your, your starting point is already lower into like that EOR stage. It's easier to go into a lower place. So I think that has a lot to do with this, you know, something about the winter. It brings me down into a lower state. Maybe maybe part of my biology is trying to tell me to hibernate, but it brings me down into a lower state. And then because I'm in that lower state, I end up in sadder places and more difficult places. And, you know, I was trying to explain this to somebody and what I had a big problem with, other than the acronym, you know, SAD, which I've already talked about, the ridiculousness of that, the, the other wording that we use for this stuff, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> Mental health, that's, that's the most popular term, the most uh, positive term, I guess, people use. But it's not accurate, is it? We're not talking about my health, right? Is we don't when we uh, when we have a broken foot, we don't say let's take care of your ankle health. <laughs> we say let's take care of your ankle problem. 
you know, when you when you have the flu, you don't say, oh, let's deal with my health situation. Say, no, let's deal with my sickness. <laughs> so mental health is this is this term and like almost to to make a positive of something that it's not positive. It's not a horrible end of the world. But it's not positive. It sucks. Having mental health issues sucks. But that's a, it's like, oh, that's how we do it, right? It's not that mental health is that you have a mental health issue. And I, I, I don't know, like issue, you know, like is, issues like something like, you know, you go to the complaints department, you know, I'm, I'm having an issue with my car, <laughs> having an issue. I bought this jacket and the buttons fell off. I have an issue. So I, the, the terminology there bothers me too. And then the other end of it is the mental illness. Now, I like this term to a certain degree because uh, even though we use it as it's like a ult- ultimate term, you know, like mental illness, oh, someone's mentally ill, you know, that means that they're psychotic or that they're psychopathic or that they're schizophrenic. That's mental illness. But to me, illness is like minimized, right? An illness is it's something small, something like something maybe that we should be applying to something like depression or anxiety. You know, they're a big deal, but they're not a psychotic big deal. They're not a, I'm, I'm having hallucinations big deal. So illness should seem like the right term, but the problem with the illness that I have is, is illness is it's, it's short term, right? A cold is an illness. You have it and then it goes away. A flu is an illness. You have it, and it goes away. Chickenpox is an illness. You have it, and it goes away. Depression is not an illness. You have it, and it goes into remission. It never goes away. Anxiety goes into remission, but it never goes away. These things, they're they're long-term problems. They're not temporary things like the word illness would insinuate. So I think the most accurate term, but the term that nobody's going to want to use is mental handicap. Because we think of mental handicap as a learning disability. A mental handicap uh, might be uh, autism or even dyslexia, which I have. It's a mental handicap. I think that anxiety and depression are mental handicaps as well. Personally, nobody has to agree with me on this. I'm just telling you how I feel when I think of these words and I try to talk about this stuff and why the words are so difficult for me because none of them really work. You know, I can feel however I want about the term mental handicap, but I can't go out there and start using it because everybody else is going to take it a different way. So my communication will be hampered. And for someone who who already doesn't like to talk about this stuff, or just, it's not even that I don't like to, someone who just is conditioned not to talk about this stuff, using words that put other people off is going to make it even worse for me and make me less likely to do it. So I think what I'm saying here is it's not that we need to use the word mental handicap or the words mental handicap, is that the the idea behind it is what we should be looking at, right? 
because first of all, there's nothing to be ashamed of if you have a handicap. Uh, just because you suffer from anxiety, you suffer from depression, you suffer from anything in that realm, there should be no more shame than if you don't have a leg below the knee or you're blind. You know, we don't shame blind people. We don't shame deaf people. Why do we shame people with mental handicaps? So I, I think that's part of the reason people are not willing to use the word is because as much as they say that they don't have a negative connotation attached with the idea of being a handicap, I think they do because they don't like to use it. But handicap is the right way of thinking about this because a handicap is long-term. You're not going to grow your leg back and you're not going to, you're not going to miraculously take a pill and two weeks later never have to take a pill again and never have to deal with depression again. These things are with you. But there's treatment. There's no cure for these things, but there are treatments. There are ways to adjust the way you live. You will have a different life, but you will have a new life. It will still, life is still good. You can still enjoy and love life. You know, a person who is paralyzed, a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, they have to use a wheelchair to get around. But they can still have a normal life in every other way, right? You know, they have to worry about whether there's a ramp to get into certain buildings and things like that. But it doesn't mean they can't fall in love and they can't, you know, they're still human beings. They're just handicapped. You or your website. So it's just not conducive. So what struck me yesterday, I think it was, so what if I, what if I uh, move it to Substack? If you don't know what Substack is, Essentially, it's a hybrid of a blog and a newsletter in the sense that it is, it's a newsletter service, but you're writing it on a blog and all it's doing is mailing the blog to people. So people can read it as a public post, as a blog, and they can subscribe. So it can just be sent to them. And I thought that'll be perfect because I thought it had a feature and it doesn't. <laughs> I thought when you updated an entry on Substack that it sent another email to your mailing list. I said, oh, that's perfect. You know, like people could subscribe to this mailing list and they get the, every time I update something, boom, they get it in their mailbox. They don't have to come look, it comes right to them. So I put, I spent, like I said, about two and a half hours moving everything that I had, everything that I've been able to pull up from internet, a database that I had lost, everything that I had that I could find that I had published online in there. Stuff from Medium, stuff from WordPress. And then when I got to the end, I realized it doesn't email people when you update. Oh, man. Oh, man. That moment. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Why can't it just update people when I make a change like it does on Patreon. Ding, ding, ding. Wait a minute. Patreon does that? 
That's right. Anytime you change a post on Patreon, there's a checkbox that says, let your patrons know about this update. And then I realized all these pieces came together. Oh, that's it. I don't have to, it won't be a waste of moving everything to Substack because that's where the first draft of everything can live. There needs to be an original copy of a living document so everybody can see where it started. And those can live on Substack. But if people like those things, if they read those things and they want to see them evolve, they want to see them move and change over time, then they, be, they can become patrons. And when they become patrons, they'll get emails of those updates. And it, it solves my problem with Patreon because the problem I always have with Patreon and with newsletters and all this other stuff is I hate exclusive content. I'm sorry. I wrote a whole piece about this. But when you make content exclusive, you limit the input that you have from other people. So essentially you create a silo and you create a cult around yourself of people who mostly agree with you. Because if they didn't, they probably unfollow you, right? But when you put things on the internet in on a public website, anybody can come to that. People who don't agree with you can stumble on there. People who agree with you but see flaws in your logic can stumble on there. People who love you can come on there. You're exposed to all of it. And it makes you a better creator. So I've had a problem trying to figure out, like, okay, some people I needed to offer the Patreon for people who support the show because some people trust Patreon and they don't want to contribute via Kofi because they've never heard of it. So I brought back the Patreon, but I was like, what am I going to put up there? I don't want to put exclusive content. But this solves the problem. You want to read the ideas, the initial ideas. They're public. They're right there on the Substack I created. But if you want to be involved in the process of seeing it evolve and, and having more input beyond that first initial draft, then you can become a patron. And any of those any of those pieces, if they ever, I don't expect many of them will, but if they ever get to a place where I'm like, this is done, this doesn't need any more input, then I would put that public again. Because that's, you know, either I would publish it as a book, if it was long enough, or if it was short enough, I'd put it back on the sub stack. Make it public, expose it to more people again. The puzzles, those puzzles too, right? Moving the pieces around because they're puzzles. I love it. All right. Um, I do have one other thing. And in a way, it relates to this idea of, of public and this idea of feedback and the importance of having your process, not only your creative process, but your thought process exposed to other people and their opinions and their expertise and their knowledge. We have copyright laws in this country. I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you've ever tried to post anything on Instagram that has a song in the background and been told you couldn't, copyright law. So 
there's this documentary that I saw a couple years ago about copyright law. The documentary is called Rip, a Remix Manifesto. And the point of this whole documentary is that copyright law stifles creativity. While I'm not going to be able to articulate his whole point because maybe he does it in two hours and I have like two minutes. <laughs> Let me give you an example of something. Say you are a hip-hop producer and you hear this, this awesome little hook. You hear this awesome little hook in a Green Day song. And you go, anybody ever made a, made a song out of a Green Day hook? Hmm. I don't know. And you start playing around with it and you just... And it, it just evolves into this amazing song. And you, you're feeling like it's one of the best things you've done in a while, this song. But guess what? Sorry. You can't, you can't release that song. Copyright. Because Green Day and Green Day's record label, sorry, it's protected. So what happens to your creativity? What, cap- what happens to your idea? It's dead, right? What do most artists do in that situation? They try to find something else that fits like, you know, like, oh, well, I guess this hook over here is kind of similar. And they put it in. And there's a great example of this with um, RZA from the Wu-Tang. Before there was a Wu-Tang clan, RZA had a very... Very brief solo career. And he had this song. It was under the name Prince Rakim. He had this song that he used to sample. And the song, I don't know, things worked a little bit different than they do now. But like the song was out on the street already. They'd already sold vinyl of this single. And it was hot. The streets were enjoying it. It was a kind of a poppy song. Not what you'd expect from Wu-Tang, if you've ever only heard Wu-Tang. It's very 90s hip-hop, early 90s hip-hop, late 80s hip-hop, that kind of sound. And song's out. It's doing well. He's he's thinking he's going to be famous. And copyright violation. A sample gets pulled. So what do they have to do? They have to pull all of those records from the shelves. And then they got to find something else to fill that sample. And they do it, and it's not as good. The song doesn't do as well. Copyright stifles things like that. But if you are a writer, if you're a musician, if you're anybody who's ever created art and tried to make money from it, you rely on copyright because copyright means people can't steal your shit. You want to make money. This is the whole thing with Metallica, right? Why they were pissed off about, uh, what was it called? (laughs) I don't remember what it was called. Napster. Because they wanted to make the money from the albums. We did the work. We want the money. And I could never, after watching that documentary, I knew they were right about copyright. But I also knew that the other side, that being the artist who doesn't make any money, because there's no copyright on your product, sucks. And I could never figure out how you resolve those two. You know, basically the way it would work, at least in the early 2000s, 
was if you were nobody, you said, rip it, steal it, whatever you want, copy it as many times as you want, because you want as many people to hear it as possible. But then once you got to where you could actually make money, then you want everybody to stop, don't copy it, don't do that anymore. We, we need to make money. That's the way it worked. That didn't work very well, right? You pissed your fans off at that point. We used to be able to copy it. So for years, I mean, this documentary, is, I think it's probably about two, 20 years old. I almost said 2,000 years old. It's from 2,000 maybe. I could never resolve it. And it's been something that's been in the back of my mind, especially as a writer. You know, I, if I put something out and somebody could take a paragraph of something I wrote and make something new from it, that's incredible. But you're like, you know, you want credit. <laughs> so there's that that hey, that's awesome. You got to make something from it. What do I get out of it? Why are artists like that? Because we're fucking broke. It's really hard to make money as a creator. And it wasn't until recently that I started to see something with Patreon and Ko-Fi and sites like this, crowdfunding sites. I started to realize that what people are doing with it right now uh, is creating communities, right? They're creating fan clubs, essentially. But it's only the beginning of it. That the real, I think the real destiny of sites like this is to eventually allow us to rewrite copyright law. And what I mean by that is right now, and for always, making money off of art, making money as a creator, has functioned on product model as function on craft model. I can make shoes. You pay me for shoes that I make. I can write songs. You pay me for songs I've put onto this disc. I can paint. You pay me for this painting. The model has always been that the creator is paid for the end product. But with Patreon and Kofi and crowdfunding sources like this, we can change that. And instead, you don't pay for the product that the person creates. You pay them for the time that they spend creating. You pay them to continually be creating, to continually be putting things out. You're not paying for that one song. You're paying for all the hours that they're spending every month sitting at the guitar, sitting at the piano, sitting at the beat-making machine. <laughs> beat-making machine. <laughs> uh, sitting at the computer. This is something that the people should be familiar with from graphic design, right? Why are graphic designers, why is their work so expensive? It only takes them an hour to make that. And this, I think originally this idea came from Pablo Picasso. You're not paying for the hour it took him to make that. You're paying for the years that it made, it took for them to get that good that they could make that in an hour. And crowdfunding sites allow us to pay people for being creative rather than creating a product. They will create products but that's 
it can become a side effect. That having a complete song is really cool. But what might be even cooler is watching that song being born. Watching it evolve over time. Doing like what I want to do with my writing. Watching these pieces evolve over time. So if we can if we can put the focus on paying people to create rather than what they create, then copyright law becomes something that only benefits corporations, people that own parts of other people's creativity. But the artists can get paid and still put their stuff out and say, here you go. If you can make something with this different, go for it. Because I'm being paid to create, and hopefully you can be paid to create too. That's a different model. And I really, really, it really changed my mind. And that's why I think that this whole exclusivity content thing is going the wrong direction with this stuff. What's exclusive? What should be just for the patrons are things that only patrons would be interested in, which is the process. But the product should be public. That the song you create at the end, the song that the done song, that's the thing that anybody should be able to listen to and jam out to. But the people who are really fascinated in your ability to create, they should have access to watching you evolve that song, to hear the demo and hear how how it sounds when you first put drums to it, what it sounds like with the rough draft vocals and what it sounds like with the revised vocals. Nobody else is interested in that anyways. So you're not creating this exclusivity club. You're just creating a place where if somebody wants that stuff, it's accessible to them. But if they just want your music, well, that's public. I think that's, it's, it's only slightly different in some ways, but in some ways it's the complete opposite of the way that people look at these things. And I'm trying to wrap my head around it because for the first time it solves that problem that presented itself to me in the Remix Manifesto. You know, we're, we're moving into a world where things are going to change drastically. So many machines are going to take jobs. But a machine, it's going to be a long time before a machine is going to be able to create the way a human creates. And even when it does that, I don't know that anyone's going to be interested in the process that they go through. Because what makes the creative process interesting to someone that's a fan of someone else is the struggle. Not only because it reaffirms for us that, yeah, this is hard. Makes us feel good uh, anytime for anything that we've succeeded at. It also makes us feel good for the things that we didn't try. It's like, man, that's hard. I don't know if I could do that. But the struggle is also valuable because of the drama. Will he ever get this song to completion? Will this sculpture ever actually look like the person? Will this drawing ever be beautiful? It's that puzzle again. That resolution that we're seeking, that order 
from chaos and watching the process of someone we respect create something. It's like watching a puzzle being solved. It's like watching Twitch, right? Watching someone else play a game. I don't know, we can can make all this stuff work together. And I think it's just going to, it's presenting a future for artists, but it's also presenting a solution to so many problems now. So with all of that said, talking about Patreon so much, I'd be an idiot not to plug my own Patreon. If you guys are interested in seeing what I do with these living documents, which I don't even know, it's an idea. Haven't even started. But you want to support the show as well. Please, become a patron. And if they, if you can see a way that I can't even see yet for this process, you know, like this whole thing I've been talking about showing the process, if you can see another way for me to satisfy that, like maybe there's part of the process in putting these episodes together that I'm missing that's worth other people seeing sharing it let me know because of course I would want to do that why wouldn't I one of the other things that I'm doing over there is I'm I'm sharing stuff that people would normally share in a newsletter like hey I just checked this out it's really cool I just watched I just listened to this podcast you know like stuff you know like people are always what do they call it curating stuff for their newsletter I thought, why put that in the newsletter? Just like put that on Patreon. Not everybody's interested in that. But the people that are, it'll be there for them. So that's what I'm doing over there. But what my what my grandest hope for that Patreon is to make it into a community. And it's not something I can do. It's something I have to hope other people do. So I can do all of the, the mechanics of making it a community, but if I'm the only one there, it's not really a community. So it's only something other people can do. Only The only thing that can happen when people show up. But what I hope for that is that just like what I hope with, with Twitter, you know, like I put my rough draft ideas like a notebook onto Twitter, hoping for other people to feed into it. When I put out these episodes, I always ask you guys, go over to Twitter and follow the real chat hall and give me constructive feedback and tell me your knowledge and let me hear your questions because I'm looking for input because that input is something that I want to feed into my hermeneutic circle. That as I circle back through things, I'm not just circling over my own thoughts and creating this silo, this narrow tunnel vision like the alt-right that other people are continually feeding things in there. And I discover new colors. Well, I think that that can become something like Twitter, but to the next level on Patreon. Because, you know, Twitter, you know, maybe you go back and forth like three or four times with somebody on Twitter. At a certain point, because it's all public, you just, you kind of stop. But if you've got something like like a discourse server, those things can just keep going. They can be ongoing conversations and not just with me. You know, because 
I have a bunch of stuff. I'm not going to be in discourse all day. But maybe you're at work. You know, you're working at home. Maybe you have discourse open. And there's other people in that discourse who are in the same situation. And you guys talk all day. That's community. You know, it's not centered around me. So that's what I'm hoping, that I can create something that's as valuable for other people. But we'll see what happens. You know, I can't make people <laughs> show up. All I can do is think about it. I have these ideas of what's possible. All I can do is make the space. All I can do is clear the runway and see what lands. Is that enough metaphors? That's two metaphors to make the same point. My voice is slowly getting raspier and drier. And as you know, that's usually my exit cue. Well, we're at 120, I mean, an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, should be my exit cue. I did have a lot of stuff on the on the platter. So I hope you guys dug this. I hope that you will follow me on Twitter. I hope you'll check out the Patreon. I hope that you will share this episode that you guys are into the new format as much as I am. And uh, until the next episode, go and think about something. And don't tell anyone about it. Just stew on it. And run it through your head. See what happens. Thank you.